Welcome to the Tone Duff Sessions, hosted by Bruce Duff, author of The Smell of Death, musician, producer, and artist manager. The conversations are recorded at Tone Duff Studio in Hollywood, California, and are a feature of Rare Bird Radio. Hey everybody, welcome to the Tone Duff Sessions. I think this is the 20th one, so that's sort of uh, epic. And we have an epic one for you. Uh, our guest is Harley Flanagan. Uh, his new book is Hardcore, and it is hardcore. I'm going to tell you, Harley, say hi to everybody. How are you out there, everybody? Now, I've interviewed a few, mu- quite a few musicians with books about their careers and their lives. So you sort of get into a pattern with it. I was not prepared for your book. Not what I thought it was going to be. That's great. I'm I'm very happy to hear that. No, it was really, it's really quite an adventure and the way it begins, the way it ends, and everything in the middle is not your typical musician bio by any leap of imagination. So, I mean, let's just hop right into it. Well, first first of all, I'd just like to say Thank you. Oh, you're very welcome, man. You wrote the book, man. You did the work. I didn't do anything. Yeah, it was work, man. It wasn't the writing that was the work. It was the living it. That was the real... That was, uh, uh, and surviving and it was the real yeah. uh, the real trick. Well, you know, getting right to the top of it, um, and I noticed you're published by a uh, company, The Sterile House. Yeah, yeah, a few people that I know. In fact, we just had Mike Stacks on uh-huh. previously, who has, uh, has a book out with them. Um, how did it even kick into gear? When did you? I mean, I, if I'm remembering correctly, well, the book in the book, or the, well, just or, the idea to do it seems like that goes back about a decade. Oh, easily. I mean, as far back as I can remember, people have been telling me I should write a book just because everybody who knows me since I was a kid, even back then, I had already lived a pretty interesting life. So. You know, yeah, people have been telling me my whole life I should write a book. And then um, I started trying to actually do it in the 90s, like the late 90s. So what was the procedure? Did you just start kind of doing a draft or taking I just started notes writing or? down memories and just... Uh, actually, truthfully, I started writing down um, experiences uh, that I was having in real time. I mean, in the 90s, it, I mean, I don't really like to admit it, but, you know, I've had a lot of time since then so it's not a big deal i was really fucked up in the 90s i like relapsed seriously into drugs i i i went from being all fucked up on heroin and then i went out to san francisco and to try to kick drugs <laughs> i went to san francisco <laughs> to try to kick drugs boy they would have had a fucking mistake i basically just so I, I i went from the heroin to the crystal meth and then i was like stuck between both worlds of those for a while and you know, I was also a bit of a dusthead at the time, so like, you know, yeah, I was burning the candle not just at both ends, but I was like running the flame up and down the middle yeah, of the sure. candle as well. And um, it dawned on me that, you know, I-, I didn't think I was gonna make it, to be honest. And I was like, you know, all the great rock and roll fuck-ups that had amazing stories to tell who didn't actually get an opportunity to tell their own story because they died. And I was like, you know, if I don't write this shit down or start writing it down, it's only going to be a matter of time before, you know, God forbid something happens, whether I get hit by a bus or I OD or or whatever, you know, get shot or whatever the fuck. And then some other asshole probably some journalist or somebody who knew me or somebody who maybe was in my band or whatever 
is going to tell my story, and they're going to get it all wrong. Get it all wrong. And they're also going to tell their version of it, which will have whatever goals that they will embark on with it. You know, it's like if one of my band members would wrote it, then it'll be their version of what an asshole I was and how they did it all, and it really wasn't me, you know? Or if it was a journalist, it would be his rendition of what a maniac I was instead of the actual story. And, and I, I wouldn't say you're too sympathetic on yourself either. Well, you know, I, I, you know I, I'm trying to be honest. I think, you know, most people are... are, are uh, a lot of people are trying to portray themselves as what they want the world to see them as, you know? Like... Uh, but but for me, you know, it's always been about honesty and integrity. I mean, I, I you know, I, 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 I'm a punk rocker, you know? I mean, it's like we, we didn't set out to impress anybody. We set out to do, do our thing. Sure. And I didn't get into music thinking I was going to make a living or be successful. I got it. I, I played music because it, it was, it, I couldn't not. It was just uh, so, so natural for me. I've been, you know... So, yeah. So, so you're in San Francisco and you decided to do this. How how did you get going? Did you get uh, a laptop? Man, I mean, you know, like, kind of got to What are you were kidding you, me? How, well, how were you able to keep track of these stories? Oh, how were you, how like were you a uh, notebook, a pen and paper? So you were, go, you you know, were old school. Yeah, All yeah. Right. I mean, laptop shit. I didn't even have a cell phone, you know. Um, and then uh, it really, you know, I, I went through several different attempts at trying to... Uh, get the the book started and it wasn't really till the late 90s when I was living in uh I was staying in Amsterdam I was staying in the red light district and again I was at the time I wasn't uh wasn't doing as much I wasn't doing smack over there I was doing a lot of ecstasy and a lot of just like you know I was I was in I was in party mode right and uh and and that's when I really started writing and uh documenting the madness you know like okay i was it was basically i would go between writing down memories and sort of writing a journal uh-huh. you know because i knew that it was basically the book was going to be basically one in the same you know it's my story you know so i was writing it as it was happening and then i would sit there and go through my uh my brain cells and see what I could find in there. So at what point did you actually seek out a deal and get one? Uh, you know, I, I s- started looking for deals probably in, uh, I started looking for, for, for de- not so much deals, but ideas and, and contacts and stuff in about 2000. Like I just started write, reaching out to old friends of mine. Like I actually reached out to like Henry Rollins just to, you know, get some input and a few other people. And he gave me some great advice. He was just like, you know, look, don't don't rush into trying to find a deal. Don't let that be the motivator. You know, write the book, make it a great book. Worry about that later. You know, right now, just write. And, and so did go. you have this almost basically done when you went to Feral House? Uh, yeah, I was actually... That's I, a I, huge undertaking. I, I was done with the book in, in 2012, and then uh, Webster Hall happened, and then I had to write another chapter, so that put it on the uh, put it back on the uh, work in progress, right. you know, so then it took me another couple years just to lock that in. And then, you know, the editing was, was a whole other beast, 
you know, I actually wound up having to enlist somebody because it would have been a, a 10,000 page, like, uh, insanity, you know? So basically, I, this is one hell of a yeah, cat Yeah, so we've got, got the truck. <laughs> if you've been listening, the truck has been beeping outside. The cat has attacked the uh, synthesizer yeah, and knocked all the stuff off of he's it. He's got a badass cat over here. <laughs> Uh, uh, we need to get these things filmed, I think, in, in the future. Yeah. Anyway, man. sorry for that all to uh, disrupt your train No, 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 it's all good. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, what the fuck was So what we were about? talking about actually getting the book to the, yeah. to the okay. publisher. And, and, and uh, they, they were interested in it before it was even done because they knew, obviously, that I, I had a story to tell. And, um, and yeah, so when, when we finally got finished with it, we pitched it to them. And, uh, you know, we, we had talked to a few other publishers, a few, like, mainstream publishers. And, and honestly, most of them were like, yo, this is, this, this, is a, this is too much. Like, this is a little, uh, this is a little too Well, they're the same racy. people who published Lords of Chaos, Well, that's right? why I yeah, wanted so to they're, go with they're that. Into that. Yeah, stuff. like, I wanted to, they seemed like the, the, the perfect place for this book, sim simply based on their track record. Like, they are not afraid of things that are controversial. They're not afraid of uh, putting out stuff that maybe offend people. Uh, and also they have a few books that have turned into movies. And now actually there are a few people that are interested in turning my book into a movie. So uh, uh, Mass Appeal, I don't know if you're familiar with the company there. Um, no, I don't a, think so. A big hip hop company. They have like um, a recording label. Uh, uh, they. Uh, I mean, a record label. They have a, you know, a magazine. It's a big magazine. They're they're a huge company, and um, they have approached me about trying to make a movie. And um, you know, I, hey, you know what? Whatever happens, happens, man. I'm just happy. Who do we see playing you? Oh hell, I don't know. Samuel L. Jackson. <laughs> I don't know, man. A bad range yeah, matchup. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Rethink, rethink it. Why not? Rethink Why not? You know. Well, so I, 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 of course, knew, of, you know, the hardcore stuff in, in the middle 80s stuff. But when I first grabbed the book and it starts with your childhood, I'm like, wow. So just to kind of fill people in who might not know, as, you know, as early as 10, you were starting to get involved in music. Yeah. yeah. And by 11, you had published your first book. Actually, I wrote that when I was nine. Okay. Oh, no, wait, what the fuck am I saying? I did that when I was like seven. It came out when I was nine. Okay, so yeah, publishing is always a bitch, isn't it? You gotta yeah, wait. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Uh, anyways, tell us and a little Alan, bit about Alan Ginsberg that's actually right. did the introduction. And for that I book. saw it on uh, I saw it on Amazon because I just looked it up. Nine hundred and fifty bucks to get yeah, a, man. Get a I, I, yeah, fucking unreal, huh? Yeah, I'm sure, it, I'm sure it's super rare and to find one in decent shape. I yeah, mean, man. Pretty historical from both your perspective, punk rock, Alan Ginsberg. Yeah, the, you yeah, know, the early seventies, all that stuff. Bizarre shit. It's great. So that just let people know kind of what that was. Um, well, it was a, a book, uh, two stories, mostly drawings, uh, two short stories. One was no um, writing at all. It was just drawings. So, um, and uh, I, I did them when I was living in Morocco with my mother and my, my stepfather. And uh, both of them were very inspired by that experience, like living up in the mountains, in the Atlas Mountains. And, um, you know, so I drew these books, drew, uh, wrote them, whatever. And uh, a couple of years later, uh, this press in, in Scandinavia, in Denmark, called Charlatan Press, 
they mm-hmm. um, they were friends of my mom's and, uh, and and they were like, wow, this is amazing. This kid art, it's like so you know pure and innocent and whatever, whatever. You know, people fucking you know a bunch of hippies. You know, like wow, this kid is uh, whoa, this is amazing. Oh, this, you know, so whatever. They liked it. And then uh, Alan uh, saw it, and he liked it, and um, he wound up doing the intro for it. So, pow. Incredible. Know? Yeah. So, a- another thing that jumped out at me about your book and your story, your life, is how nomadic it is. Like, there's there, almost never in the book does it have the sentence something like, okay, and then I went home. Because yeah, home, home is not yeah, really yeah, an, no, a, a no. thing in the home book. Is where, home is the body I'm in. Yeah. <laughs> Which is, I mean, I don't think, I think that's something that, you didn't pound it over everyone's head in the book, but I think it's something most people might not key into right off the bat because everybody's just used to growing up and I was raised here and yeah. this is where I go. You know, just to have, be constantly on the move like that and staying with relatives, staying with friends, staying in a squat, whatever it might be, is pretty foreign to just about everybody. I guess so. I It, it really didn't seem that way to me. Because it's what you knew. Yeah, you know, and also, you know, my mother was... Uh, you know, me and her used to hitchhike a lot when I was a kid, and uh, we traveled, you know, all over. I mean, we forget about hitchhiking across the country in the States and stuff. I mean, we hitchhiked all across Europe when I was, you know, not even 10 years old. I was like seven, you know, six, younger, you know, uh, all the way up to, to, to Morocco. I mean, we were all over Scandinavia, all over the States, and, and, and that, you know, yeah, it's... Uh, it was a very unique experience, I I'm guess. I'm sure. Yeah. So, I, how, how I, obviously you did, how did you get an education throughout all of this? Because um, that's not really touched on too much. You know, I, honestly, I really don't have much of a formal education. I dropped out of seventh grade, and I was actually left back before I dropped out. Uh, so, really... Whatever education I have came just from, you know, living, you know, I mean, reading, uh, absorbing, you know, everybody involved in my life uh, has always said how uh, I I pick up things, you know, I I, I learn, it doesn't just happen around me, like I actually absorb it, you know. It's Pisces, well, you seem to Pisces pick up, Pisces thing, you know, drums and bass pretty pretty readily. Yeah, as well. you know, art is a natural thing for me, whether it's you know an instrument or drawing or or martial arts or whatever. I mean, I just I like to express myself physically, you know. So I guess when you're around, if I'm keeping everything straight, around the age of eleven, you sort of returned or settled in to some yeah. degree to the Lower East yeah, Side. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, and, and at which time, like you, 10, 11. Yeah, yeah, you got into the stimulators. Yeah. Which, again, is something everybody might not be familiar with, but I did a little research on it. It's kind of like a crossroads band. Very where much like, so. yeah. Where it's sort of like the last wave of those it original was, Seabees was, bands, yeah. but not quite hardcore exactly. yet. Exactly. It was really uh, the transition from the end of punk rock to what would become the beginning of hardcore. Uh, and you guys play with everybody. We played with everybody. I mean, we played, you know, your your cat's name is Lux. Yeah. We, we played with the Cramps. You know, we played with, um, you know, I mean, God, we played with Madness. We played with the B-52s. We played with uh, uh, Circle Jerks. We played with, uh, 
A lot of the early, early first-generation hardcore bands uh, that weren't, you know, the term didn't even exist yet. Right. You know, we used to play with the Bad Brains when they were just the fastest punk band on earth. You know, I of mean, course. they they weren't called hardcore. It wasn't called hardcore. It was just incredibly fast, like vicious, tight, nasty punk rock. Yeah, I don't. Come speaking of that, when the when uh, Bad Brains came out, I don't even know if anyone bothered to classify them as something they were sort of like a genre of one especially yeah, with all yeah, the reggae stuff yeah from well it, i mean know. well i i knew them before the reggae was even really a big part of their set i mean on their first single they obviously they had that song stay close to me which was uh wasn't really reggae but it was definitely not punk you know it was a uh, i don't even know what the hell you'd call it it like had sort of a i don't know what vibe you'd call that, like... It's like, what is that, Calypso? I don't know. What yeah. the fuck is that? Sounds like but they some were kind listening of to all that music. stuff. Well, those guys were, they were musicians. You know, that was the difference between them and a lot of the bands at the time. They were musicians, you know, they really raised the bar. And uh, those guys were a huge influence on me. Uh, being close friends of my mine and my family's, you know, they used to come to my grandparents' house, and my mom's house, and my aunts, and and they were some of the first people to turn me on to some of the, um, you know, like I, I would have never known of like Return Forever, you know, and, and you know, the fusion my, stuff, my sure. Vishnu and stuff like that. If it wasn't for Doctor No, which was really just a few years earlier. I mean, yeah, hardly any yeah, time yeah. At all, really. I mean, a lot, you know. Daryl was, you know, he was, you know, Stanley Clark was his, you know, that was his man, you know, he used to like write him fan mail and shit, you know, I mean, so, you know, he turned me on to a lot of that type of stuff. I mean, but I was always very musical. I was, I had a wide range of taste. I mean, before, before hardcore, I mean, I, I was into punk rock, obviously, but even before that, I was into everything i was really into bob marley yeah i said you were exposed to reggae yeah i was was big time into marley and i used to like draw pictures of Jimi hendrix when i was like seven eight years old i have like still have drawings of him and and drawings of like uh pete townsend and keith moon and stuff that i was doing when i was little you know like seven eight nine years old like you know and you think it was sort of just the environment of kind yeah, of free-spirited yeah. hippies that exposed that, you to music and, so early? Yeah, and, and also, you know, I do come from a long line of musicians. I mean, my grandfather was a, a classical pianist, and, and my grandmother played piano and sang, and, you know, my grandfather played flute and clarinet and all kinds of stuff. So music was always very much a part of my my family you know like we always had friends who were musicians coming over to the house and playing piano and my grandfather would crack out the flute and there'd be you know jam sessions you know in my house and uh so i always grew up around uh music and the uh the the joy of music right you know the joy of creating and interacting with another person musically well talking about uh stimulators playing with so many different types of bands do you think that when you made the transition a couple years later into Cro-Mags and, and it's then classified. Well, first it seemed like when I heard about it, it was classified as crossover, which I, I think that yeah, was sort that of actually a came record a little label after. Man, yeah, I thing. think that kind of came after. I mean, we were definitely a, a part of that first wave of hardcore, but I've always considered us to be like the last of the first wave of hardcore bands. 
uh, you know, like we were definitely a part of that first wave, but we were not as early as, say, Minor Threat or Black Flag or sure. the Circle Jerks, but we were part not of Not too that. far later. Not too far later, but the, the thing is also everybody in the band was a part of that. Like, we were in the crowds at Circle Jerks shows and Black Flag, and so it's like we were, we didn't discover it afterwards and try to do it. Right. Like, like all the bands that came after us, like all the mid to late 80s and so on and onward, were all kids who were like into hardcore and trying to play hardcore. And that was pretty much all they knew was hardcore. They weren't like, they didn't grow up on music and then started creating right. something that became hardcore. So it was really kind of, you know, repeating the motions, you know. It, to me, it got a little kind of boring. By, by, by 86, I thought it was pretty much rap like you know at that point it was like people were just kind of imitating the same shit over and over and that's why when uh crow mags did best wishes it was such a very different album not only had we lost the singer and got a new drummer but i was just bored to fucking death with all the fake minor threat bands out there and all the you know the fake ssd control bands like it seemed like every new york band that was coming out at that point was just like a fake version of earlier hardcore bands and also at that point it, it seemed like unlike the simulators where you could play with that stimulators where you could play with anybody or a, a much wider variety hardcore stuck with hardcore it started it's a to hardcore get, it, yeah show. it started Every to really turn into yeah it started really turning into some some you know for lack of a better word like some uh, romper room yeah, you know, it was very fitting that the CBGB's shows were matinees because that's what it fucking was a bunch of little kids playing hardcore like playing i mean like literally playing not you know like it's funny it was like yay let's go to the matinee and and mosh it's funny and, and with scowls on our I faces read. we'll wave our fists yeah. around and mosh do some stage dives and whoa look there's rabies whoa <gasps> there's harley oh there's john like it was all these fucking kids who were like in awe of right the cats who had actually been around for a while and that, so at that point it's already kind of fucking cheesy uh, I read an interesting you know thing in, in your Wikipedia. It's like the fans your... take over, and then it's like fans jocking other fans. Right. <laughs> you know, it's like... I, I think it was your Wikipedia page that said, uh, or made the point, that in a way, you, by virtue of being so young when you got involved and kind of kicking into gear, you know, still a teenager, I mean, you were still in the teens when you had the Chromax going, kind of in a way open the door to oh, these yeah. matinees because oh, you had I, to have dude, kids involved. It wasn't even a kind of a way. The stimulators were the reason that they started having matinees in New York because I was like 12, you know, and when guys like the Beastie Boys and and all the early New York hardcore bands like Cause for Alarm and Reagan Youth and all these bands were, before they were bands, when they were all coming to see the stimulators, they were not much older than me. You know, I was 12 and these cats were like 14, 15 and 16 and so on. So a lot of stimulators shows would be like half the crowd would be outside, like listening to the show because they couldn't get in. You know, we would be sneaking people into our shows in like drum cases and, and like shit like that. So clubs started having matinees so that our fans could get in. And that was kind of the birth of the uh, hardcore matinee. Right. You know, and it wasn't even called hardcore matinees. They were just matinees. And then uh, when our fans all started forming what would become the first generation of New York hardcore bands, you know, cats like Reagan Youth and like all those bands I mentioned, Kraut and everybody else, 
you know, that was really, uh, that was when New York hardcore really became a thing. When, like, the Stimulators and Bad Brains fans started uh, getting up and doing it themselves. Sure. And, and I think, you know, I don't want to try to say I have any kind of credit in that, but a lot of them felt like, you know, straight up, like, Harley's 12, man, he's in a fucking band, why, you know, let's do it, you know, yeah. I, I can start a band, if he can do it, you know. Well, I yeah, sure, it, you, you see the DJ guys saying that. Yeah, 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 you yeah. know, and, 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 and you were probably, they might have been younger than you, I'm not sure. No, no, I, I, it, I, I was, in New York at the time, I was the youngest, I mean, it wasn't until, you know, years later when bands like The Young and The Useless started forming who were like friends of the Beastie Boys and, and people like that. But like Adam Yauch and all those guys, they were all a little older than me. Okay. Not much. Like okay. they were all probably like two to three years older than right. me. I was a, a, a rare thing. I mean, when I was going to Max's, there was no such fucking thing as a kid in clubs. It was, it didn't exist. There, you know, there, the youngest kid on the scene in New York was this a dude named Excessive and he was like 16 or 17 and I was like 11 and well even so what how was this even happening yeah I mean, how the clubs would just yeah. look the other way because oh uh, you know it's funny or... man because well that and also because my mom was you know pretty cool everybody knew her you know and my aunt was was everybody knew my aunt my aunt had been in bands since so you had your guardian so yeah to speak. you know my my right. quote-unquote legal guardian yeah, but yeah. then the thi but then it was literally like once i became a fixture on the club scene everybody knew who the fuck i was like i would show up at a club and it would be like oh hey harley who's with you and they would literally let me and 12 of my friends in and um that part I thought was pretty incredible. Well, it's funny because, like, I don't know if you ever saw the interview that Anthony Bourdain did with me, but one of the things he said was, man, I remember being in front of clubs like Max's and trying to get in and stuff, and then you'd, like, this kid would just, like, walk up and walk through like he was just, like, untouchable. Like, you know, who the fuck is this kid and why is he even allowed in here? Like, what the fuck is... You know, it was like, he, he, he was like, what the fuck is wrong with this picture? You know? <laughs> I can't get in this club and this fucking child is walking through like he owns the place. You know, they're giving him free passes, free drinks. What the fuck, you know? And that's another question I had. How did the Anthony Bourdain connection make? Because obviously well, that, having him on yeah, your book well, is a he, cool thing. Yeah, well, he knew of me since those days. And then our paths crossed, uh, believe it or not, through jujitsu. Uh, I'm, I'm, oh, okay. I'm a jujitsu right. instructor. Right. And I was actually teaching his daughter for a while. And, ah. You know, and I met him at the academy and hung out with him a few times. And he was always very nice, really, really cool guy. Really. Did he make there. that connection initially? My daughter's being taught by Harley from well, the uh, it, at old first, days. I don't think it dawned on him at first who I was. And then when we did make the connection, me and him started talking. You know, that's when he told me that he had seen me play and so on and so forth. And uh, yeah, uh, he is a really cool dude, and actually. I before my book came out, I let him read the first like six chapters just to see what he thought because I was like, you know what, this guy's a great writer. I love his shows, and you know, I, I'm curious to because I actually respect him. I'm curious what he would think of this thing. So I let him take a look at it, and he gave me some really good feedback. He was like, this is really good. Um, you know, he gave me a couple pointers. He was like, I think you should talk. Like I had pers purposely left a lot of stuff out about my my mom you know and my relationship with her because a lot of it was really 
hard for me to to write about, and I, I, I and that. I and I didn't know if I wanted to write stuff that I thought people might uh, get a, a bad impression of her. Uh, because you know, to be honest, she she was a great person, a beautiful person, but she wasn't the the best in the parenting department. Well, that's what I was going to say. It, you know, it's not exactly your role model yeah, mom, but you know, certainly a person who cut exactly. through life. I mean, you know, she she way. was definitely a role model in certain aspects, but not in the parenting department per se. So, you know, that was one thing he pointed out to me. He was like, you know, I think one of the most interesting people in this story is your mom. And and uh, I think you need to write a little bit more about that. And I And I told him, I was like, there's a lot of stuff in this book that I'm avoiding because I don't want to I don't want to like freak my kids out or, or like hurt their feelings because I know how embarrassing life can be for the child of a freak <laughs> you know God knows I experienced that myself you know and I was like you know and then he's like look man you know none of this shit is is a secret you know like it's all out there and people are going to know and people are going to find out. So, you know, the, you, you got to just put it all out there. You got to be honest and don't pull any punches, man. You know, don't be afraid of fucking throwing the shit out there. And, and, and so I was like, you know, I, I gave what he said a lot of thought. And then I went back in and I started writing a lot of the stuff that I had initially planned on leaving out. And uh, I gotta give him props for that because I think that it did ultimately make the book a lot better because it's, uh, again, it's it, it, sincerity is everything, you know? It's why my music still uh, holds up. It's why, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's the only thing I have as far as integrity, you know? Like, the guys I played with were kind of full of shit people. That's the one thing that I can say that I'm not, so. I'm glad I took his advice, and uh, you know, I miss my mom like crazy though. So, you know? Who doesn't? Of yeah. course. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I mean, I can dig all that. Um, well, one thing I was thinking, having said what you said, like a lot of times, I'd, and I don't want to give away too much because people should should experience this in real time on their own. But going through the book, you know, you get to a certain part, and I go, "Oh, Harley's kind of settled down here. He's got it together. He's <laughs> yeah. rolling." And all of a sudden, like be some <laughs> wildly violent episode pop out. And I go, wow, I can't believe he wrote that down and explained it in such detail. And then, given the amount of drugs you were on at the same time, yeah. remembered it in such detail. Bro, you know Another what? amazing thing. But it would keep happening, like even towards the end, like, oh, everything's kind of settled down. He's teaching Nah, his man, there's no such luck. <laughs> and then some other, the whole Webster thing yeah, happened. It was well, like, you know wow. What? Life is always going to be full of ups and downs. I mean, you know, even for, you know, for everybody, I mean, it's like you can go through all kinds of hell and then, you know, get settled in, start making a good living, this and that, and then, you know, fucking the next fucking madness episode happens. I mean, life is a fucking roller coaster. I don't think there's ever, like, a place that you get to and it's just good from there out. I mean, yeah, it's good from there out, but there's always going to be chaos. I mean... Do you find that still to be the case today? Well, shit, I mean, you know, there's chaos even getting you know, on tour and shit or whatever, getting from one coast to the other. I mean, getting to the airport, whatever. There's always going to be some... It's never easy, you know? I mean, this shit keeps us on our toes, you know? Yeah. Well, to that end, you're out here doing a show this weekend. Yeah. Uh, who are you playing with? What What exactly to is it? To be honest, I don't know, really. I don't know who the hell we're playing. We're playing with a bunch no, of No, no, in your band. Oh, okay, in my band, I have... Uh, 
I got one of my old guitarists, this guy Gabby Abularash, who sure. played with me on uh, Alpha Omega, which was a Chromags album. He played with me in the Chromags, toured with us a few times. He also played with me in a band I had for uh, almost ten years called Harley's War. And uh, my drummer Gary Sullivan, G-Man, he has been with me in the Chromags going back to about 2000, and. He was also with me in Harley's War, and I got another guitarist, Artie Alexander, who's also a badass. I mean, I'm really fortunate. I'm, I'm, I've got some really good musicians playing with me, and they're great guys. So, um, yeah, this, this, uh, I'm, I'm really excited to play. Well, your stuff was always a little on the technical end, I think, compared to a lot of hardcore. Is that, is that I, fair, yeah, you think? Yeah, you know, I, I think it's fair simply because I'm an actual musician, and I think a lot of people who play hardcore play, uh, you know, I think a lot, a lot of the people who play this genre are, are technically not really very good <laughs> musicians. Well, I know? think into that end, I think some people get into it because it, it looks like a lot of fun, and it yeah, maybe isn't going to be that you know difficult what? I mean, going, look, that's Which is kind that, of a punk rock that, thing that, in that, general. Bro, that's why I got into punk rock. I mean, I was like, I was into all kinds of music, you know, I was into all kinds of stuff and then when I heard the Sex Pistols and damn that I was just like you know what you don't have to be Carlos Santana or uh, Jimi Hendrix to, to have a great fucking time playing songs like you don't have to be a virtuoso I mean the Ramones you know wrote fucking amazing songs that are still amazing songs and those guys could you know barely fucking play I mean if you you know as far as music like musicianship they were not you know Didi was not like an amazing musician but he wrote some great fucking songs no question and, and that's what you know that's the integrity of punk rock is that you, you know it's about having fun being honest and being real getting you know? involved yeah getting involved doing it yourself yeah and that was the beauty of it but i think a lot of the later bands like i said they're copycat bands you know it's like you if you if you grow up, if if you grow up only knowing one style of music, and then you know, well, what do you think your songs are going to sound like? If all you know is Minor Threat and whatever, whatever, then, then that's what you're going to sound like. Uh, my generation of hardcore were lucky in the sense that there was no hardcore before we were doing it. So well, that'd be like the first wave of like the CBGB. Yeah. So 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 yeah. So like you're you you're drawing on other elements for your inspiration and you're just doing your thing with it and therefore it comes out its way instead of coming out sounding like right the same repeated bullshit yeah you know i also wanted to ask you uh just because it was interesting to me maybe not to everybody else but uh you know going back to the early 70s and on in the lower east side and as the book's rolling, and as we all know, it, it became more and more gentrified as time went on. But where do you think the line actually drew where you saw, okay, now it's changed? I'm trying to think. When did the, when was the Lower East Side kind of not so rough and you didn't have to worry that much walking around? Well, uh, I mean, late 90s, it was pretty much done, you know. In the 90s, it still had a certain element of danger down there. I mean, and, it, you know, you... you Back when you had like Tent City and the Tompkins Square Park riots and all that stuff, there was still a level of uh, 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 danger. Okay. You know? but I saw always but, but after that Tompkins Square Park riot is really when the, that's when uh, 
the lockdown really where when they uh that was the, the switch i just want i think the first time i went to new york and, and spent quite a bit of time in uh you know st mark's and all that kind of area of course was 86 and i was just so overwhelmed and fascinated with it that yeah yeah i had no fear this is great i'm in well, new york i mean it know? wasn't uh, even in 86 it wasn't really as bad I mean, it you doesn't know, because, sound like it was as bad as it no, was. No, I mean, you know, yeah, because, like, we had already, when I say we, I mean the hardcore kids, we had already kind of pushed east. You know, I grew up on the Lower East Side, but most of those kids didn't. And by, by the, the mid, by the early to mid-80s, the hardcore scene basically existed on the Lower East Side. So it was like that first wave of white teens kind of infiltrating the neighborhood and we started I hate to say it but we kind of made it safe for the rest of the gentry to roll through like after us you all the artists started opening up galleries and it was like once we kind of But even it, at that point weren't a lot of those kids coming in from they weren't No most of them were residents. No, no, most of them were not residents most of the New York hardcore kids were not really even from the, from the lower east side a lot of them came from Queens and Brooklyn and, and Jersey and shit like that, but I grew up down there, and that was one one part of my experience back in those old days. Was you know, a lot of these kids would come down into my neighborhood and, and start and raise lots of shit and get into fights with the locals and stuff. But then at the end of the night, you know, they'd fuck off back to Brooklyn or New Jersey or whatever. And the next day, I had to like wake up and go outside and deal with the same motherfuckers that we had gotten in fights with the night before. Or, you know, going back to when I was even younger, I'd have to go to school the next day with the younger brothers of the kids that we had been getting in fights with on the street the night before. So I had a very different experience down there than a lot of the so-called hardcore kids because uh, most of them were not really from there. One thing I wanted to ask you because it almost struck me like a chess records kind of story is your dealings with the Rock Hotel and, and Chris Williamson. Yeah, he was a fucking real... Well, I mean, the, the point that... One thing that caught me in the book is uh, you're talking about how you never really got paid, but they were taking care of everything. And yeah. then I saw a picture of the band, and it's like, well, they, they all got Marshall stacks, so... I mean, but then it says Which that the rented, was all right? rented. Yes, yeah, yeah they, we rented our gear. There was always some reason why we were not getting paid at the end of the tour well, we had to pay for this and we had to pay for that. You know, there was always some fucking reason that we weren't making any money. But meanwhile, our manager was, you know, had a houseboat and was like living in Central Park West and like was booking all these shows. Now, granted, you know, maybe he was making all that money through other means. But the, the fact of the matter is, is when we signed our record deal with Profile, he was the subsidiary label, Rock Hotel. So... Basically, he was supposed to be protecting us from profile, which he didn't do. He 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 basically he had his lawyers represent us when he, we signed the contract. But wouldn't profile be basically just Man, it was, allowing him to do what he needed, and then yeah, you but guys then, but were then, just the yes, the, the but then but then all? the point is, is he had his lawyer read our contracts for us, and we were signing with him, so we got totally just like. We didn't know, you know, we were just, we were stupid kids. None of us had lawyers, none of us had money. I signed that, they literally waited till like the week after I turned 18 to ink that deal so that I wouldn't need like parental consent or this or that, like it was such shady shit. And you know, to this day I've, I've 
I, I get like jack shit on, on those records. I don't get anything on sales. I, I get like nothing. It was it was a real shit show the way it turned out. Uh, here, a couple of things also that struck me in the book that I wouldn't have thought of. Uh, going back to the hardcore scene, Crow Mags, your life. Two things that were uh, in. It seemed like went along the whole journey with with uh, the say the first three or four Crow Mags record. The drug of choice seemed to be LSD, which I would not have well, thought of. Uh, you know, I did a lot of acid when I was a kid. Um, I was actually sort of out of that by the time Cro-Mags were happening. And then I started fucking around with mushrooms and shit like that again by the time we were doing Alpha Omega. Actually, like, by the time Age of Quarrel came out, I was only smoking weed. You know, I, I wasn't drinking, I wasn't doing anything. And it was like that for a long time. You know, I mean, I I would go for long periods uh, of, you know, just being a pothead and then, then falling back into severe drug abuse. Which, but, but, but the drug abuse would only really happen when I, when I really didn't have anything going on in my life that was positive. Like, if I didn't have a, my band, a band together, if I didn't, you know, if I didn't have uh, some, some creative outlet, then, then you know, I, I would just, uh, it would... Just get distracted? It was just, my, my I just turns self-destructive, you know? It's like, if you don't, if the active mind if it doesn't have something to do with itself, it starts turning on itself, you know? And, you know, and I, I mean, I, you know, I, 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 I've struggled with depression and, you know, all the other things that people grapple with, you know, and, you know, to a certain degree, I have, you know, PTSD. I mean, it's like you can't live the way I've lived and, and had as many fights as I've had and lived on the street and not known where your next meal was coming from, never mind get stabbed and shot at and everything else without having a certain level of... Like you've been to war. Yeah, you know, because life has been a war for me in its own way. You know, I mean, I wasn't out, like, fighting Al-Qaeda, but, you know, I mean, I've been fighting with my own demons and had my own struggles. So, you know, with all of that, you know, when you don't have a, a place to put your energy, it can go bad. And uh, especially when you're surrounded by, you know, not the best people. I mean, I... Unfortunately, I've, I've often been surrounded by people who were trying to take advantage of me in some manner or another because of my status and whatever scene or whatever, you know, like, you know, so it, it's hard to trust people, yeah. you know, when, when you've been in the quote unquote limelight, even when it's a small limelight, like the punk rock limelight or the hardcore limelight, which is shit really still in an international it's still thing. it's still you know when you have people like up your ass about who you are and and strange strangers like wanting to suck your dick just because you're fucking cool you know that it's it's a weird dynamic you know especially you know when you're when with all that admiration you're still broke and, and struggling and homeless and and plus, you went through all this before most people would have. Yeah, you know. You know, the average kid is getting, maybe getting signed to a deal 22, 23, maybe? And, and, Especially and nowadays, average, it might even be more. And the average more. kid is not, like, hitchhiking across the world by themselves when yeah. you're 15. You know, never mind that I was doing it with my mom when I was not even a teenager. You know, I mean, the average kid doesn't, like, go to their mother's job at a fucking strip club and watch dudes sticking fucking... 
dollar bills down their mother's fucking g-string you know i mean i got a lot of trauma you know a lot of a lot of shit that um a lot of baggage that most people don't get yeah. you know but uh well yeah. the other thing that sort of coincides with uh crow mags early on that might have been a little unusual to other bands was the Krishna. Yeah, uh, yeah, that was definitely some weird shit. Yeah. So, but I mean, it seemed like you were pretty sincere about I, let's yeah, make well, this see, work. See, see, that's the problem. Is again, there's a situation where I was sincere about something, and you know, my singer, you know, and especially in hindsight, is this the fucking fullest shit, motherfucker? You know. But was he the one that introduced it to well, you? Sort not of? really. I mean, yeah, as far as that period, but. The truth is, is my mom was into that shit in the fucking 60s. I mean, I got drawings. My mom did a Krishna, like, before I was born. I mean, she almost named me Harley Krishna. You know, I, I, I knew about the Krishnas through Allen Ginsberg. Right. You know, because he was friends with Prabhupada. So, you know, some could say that, you know, karmically, it was meant to be. In right. fact, I was in Prabhupada's presence twice. And once at the preaching center on 2nd Avenue, which to all you higher Krishnas out there is a big fucking deal. You know, it's like being near Jesus, you know? So, I mean, yeah, but as far as uh, the band being influenced by that, that was a lot to do with John. And and the joke is, is that um, when he first got into that shit, like, everybody in New York fucking was laughing at him. Like, everybody was breaking his fucking balls. It was the biggest fucking joke in hardcore. And it wasn't until I got into it that people started, like, uh, backing off of him a little bit because I was fucking crazy and if you fucked with me I would fuck you up you know like I mean there was plenty of times where like skinheads would try to jump me and my friends because they thought oh Harley's soft now he's a pussy now he, he, you know he's vegetarian he's in the higher Krishna <laughs> let's fuck his ass up show him what a real skinhead is and I would fucking wind up laying waste. I put one dude in a fucking coma almost ended his fucking life when him and a bunch of friends jumped me so it's like you know, yeah, I was vegetarian and Hare Krishna, but I was still a fucking a thug in my heart. Like, I was still, my DNA was still Lower East Side. I would still eat you. So, you know, so that got people to accept the Hare Krishna influence on the scene because they were basically scared of me and my friends. It wasn't all of a sudden like, wow, we converted all these people. It was like all these people who were scared of us started fucking jocking us. And then every, then it became cool to be a Hare Krishna Well, that's what I went so... Which I think is the... Fu when people started calling us the Krishna skins, I was like, that's the most fucking ridiculous, like Woody Allen shit I've ever heard in my fucking <laughs> life. What the fuck is a Hare so Krishna skin? Did a lot of guys actually yes! convert to it? Yes! Or were they just like oh, leaving you alone? No, well, you know, all the people like Warzone and Agnostic Front, they kind of left us alone because they didn't want to get their fuck heads kicked in you know I was friends with AF and stuff but everybody started kind of getting a little bit of an attitude when we got into the Krishna shit like oh he's, Harley's not a real skinhead anymore meanwhile yo I would fuck any of them dudes up like they don't these fucking jerk offs they don't know what a real fucking skinhead is most of those motherfuckers that never had a real fight like you know forget about them and their buddies beating one you know beating some guy up most of them had never had a real fight and most of them didn't have the balls to run into a fight that they may not win that was the difference between me and the rest of the New York hardcore kids. Is, you know, I was fearless to the point of stupidity. You know, like, I didn't give a fuck if there was a chance I might not come out. You know, and that's why people didn't fuck with me because, uh, you know, it's scary to fuck with someone who's got nothing to lose. Well, that is a, a very good point. Uh, 
To that end, we will not be fucking with you today. <laughs> That's my guarantee to you. We're going to stay out of that path. Hey, yo, I, 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 when is this going to air, by the way? Uh, this should be out Wednesday. Okay, cool. Yeah, cool. and the show is after that, so we'll, we'll be yeah. a little before the show. Yeah, well, uh, so if y'all hear this, uh, come check out these gigs, man. Um, this is actually going to be the first time where I'm not going to be singing the entire set myself. We have a guest singer singing with us and I'm hoping that this turns into a full-time thing. Is this something we can divulge here? Yes, this is something we can divulge here. I will be sharing the stage with Jocko Willink, one of the highest decorated Navy SEALs that this country has ever had. And happens to be a great singer. He happens to be a bad motherfucker. And he has been into the chrome egg since he was a kid. And um, he, I did his podcast recently, and we've become uh, pretty good friends. And uh, I was, you know, I, I miss just playing. You know, I've been singing and playing bass now for a long time, like, you know, more than 20 years or whatever. But uh, I miss the freedom of just running around playing my instrument. I miss the freedom of, like, all of a sudden I'm on the PA stack, and I'm like, how the fuck did I get up here? You know, like, because when I'm singing, I feel like I'm kind of on a leash. Like, I really can't Right, you gotta go, stay by that microphone. Yeah, exactly. And I, that was one of the things that I thought was really dynamic about the Cro-Mags, too, is that me and John, it wasn't like there was one front man. It was like, those two motherfuckers are going insane. Like, you know, we were like two, you know, tops just spinning all over the stage, like, you know, you, you didn't, didn't know who to watch because it was so dynamic and intense. And and I missed that type of chaos, that type of energy. And and I remember thinking to myself, you know, I mean, not to, not to suck my own dick here, but I'm a pretty, you know, intense performer. And I'm like, you know what, I, I, who would be the, who would be more intense than me? Like, who could I get that would really raise the bar? And I'm thinking, and I'm thinking, I'm like, you know, I need somebody who's like, somebody like Henry in the 80s when he first joined Black Flag, or someone like fucking Phil Anselmo, like back in the vulgar display of power Pantera days, like somebody who's just like, like intense. And I was like, fucking Jocko Willink. Now, how do you know about him? Uh, he's got a podcast. He's a, he's very well known. Um, I heard some of his uh, podcasts, and I was just like, "Damn, this motherfucker's intense!" And then when I found out he was a fan of mine, a fan of the, the band and stuff, I reached out to him, and we started bullshit, and we became, uh, you know, friendly. And and I was like, "Man, he's like the the probably one of the most in, intense people I know. Like, I mean, if there, I don't think I know anybody who's more." intimidating <laughs> like he's like one of the scariest motherfuckers you'll ever meet and i was like yeah this is this could be good so i asked him i was like yo do you ever think about singing for a hardcore band to which he responded fuck yeah <laughs> and i was like well oh, now that you mentioned it oh. you know now it's for real you know my old singer that motherfucker john used to tell people he was a navy seal because he was in the navy he used to fucking bullshit the world like yeah i was a navy seal you know yeah well guess what buddy i got a real fucking navy seal in the band now so you could fucking go tell that story to your mama because she won't believe it either you know <laughs> 
You know, something I want to ask is way off the subject, but you just made me think of it uh, with by mentioning Jocko. You mentioned uh, Jocko Pastorius in yeah, the book, and I knew yeah, yeah. some people that were kind of around when he had sort of just turned to the streets and was just lost yeah, himself. Yeah. Is that when you met him? Is that how you... Yeah, yeah, I used to run into him. What was going on there? Uh, Any idea? You know, I mean, obviously there was something going on upstairs that, you know, we'll never understand. I mean, there was something chemical in his brain, you know, I mean, you know... And then the drugs and the alcohol didn't fucking help, you know, but, uh, you know, most really artistic people that are on that other level of... of, of of creativity, usually there's something a little off, you know, whether it's some sort of Asperger's type thing or whether it's some sort of whatever the fuck it is. And, uh, you know, th that thing that makes you special can sometimes also, you know, you can, uh, you know, be the thing that takes you down. Yeah. You know, I, I don't know too many artists that handle regular life very well. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Mm -hmm. It's a real tricky balance because that same thing that gives them the, 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 the ability to see and think outside of the box also prevents them from being able to function inside the box. Yeah. You know, and, and that becomes a, 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 a trick in itself, you know. And then, you know, Jocko, I mean, the alcohol and the coke and, 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 and the admiration of others is a real fucking, a real head fuck. You know, when, when people are like, just on your dick because of whatever thing that you're good at. It, it's it's a weird thing to you know. It's it's weird to get that energy from from the people. Yeah. You know? Yeah. The guy I knew that was he was a friend of a I friend of his bases. Oh, you're kidding me. Yeah. I have uh, an Ibanez that he traded to a friend of mine for an eight ball, <laughs> and I bought it for a hundred. So it's bucks. fretless. No, it's a, it's a, it's it's got frets. It, I I've never actually seen pictures of him playing it. That fretless, by the way, he took the frets out himself. That was not a fretless. Right. Bass. He popped them shits out with like. Well, a he might have been one of the first guys to even figure out that was a thing. You know. Yeah. No, he bass. was definitely. Yeah, he was one of the fucking. He, he was the Jimi Hendrix of bass. Yeah. That motherfucker was nasty. Yeah, the guy I knew that was sort of in his circle said that like towards the end he was just sitting around, uh, playing Louie Louie slow. And seemed very fascinated by it. <laughs> you know, no, I mean, it's, I'm glad you laughed because it's like, what? <laughs> no, dude, it's you want to hear a bad one, man? Fucking uh, Daryl from the Bad Brains met up with him one time, and Jocko was like, yeah, man, meet up with me at such and such time on Avenue A and 7th Street. I'm going to give you a free bass lesson. And Daryl was like, you know, fuck. Fuck, man, I'm going to get a fucking bass lesson from Jocko. Whoa! So he fucking gets his bass and he goes and he's fucking waiting for Jocko. Jocko shows up like an hour later, whatever the fuck. Doesn't have the keys to get into the apartment that he's going into. So he like climbs the fire escape, you know, breaks in through the window, gets in, lets Daryl in and uh, pulls out a fucking crack pipe. And he's like, are you ready for your free bass lesson? <laughs> and oh. and Daryl was just like, he just wanted to cry. It was I'm like, sure oh God, you know, like... Uh, just I don't know if we can talk that, man. That's just ah, uh, oh, it's pretty fuck. bad, you know. And, but plus all the build up to it with going through. Ah, oh, yeah, you know. No, oh and God. it's like a free base <laughs> less. Oh, tragedy. Uh, so your show is at the Regent. 
Yeah, I and think that's, that's Saturday night, right? I, you know, your guess is as good I'll as I'll look mine. it up I'm and doing, include it. Yeah, the Fury Fest. I'm yeah, playing. It's, a, it's, at, so, it's sold out anyway. I believe so. Yeah, it's but it's going to be an intense show, so I would suggest that anybody who doesn't have a ticket, I would say show up anyway and try to get in through the back door, the fucking windows, bring a rope, climb the roof yeah. somehow, because this shit's going to be nuts. I mean, I am going to, uh, if I don't explode on stage, I, I mean, I'll be really surprised if I don't, because... Uh, well, don't explode. We don't need a spinal <laughs> tap drummer moment, you know. And the, that, no one wants to deal with that kind of cleanup. Yeah, no, be believe me, there's going to be, like, body parts all over the fucking right. place. It's going to be intense. Well, Harley, thanks a million for coming by. I will try oh, to see you pleasure, next Saturday. Man. I'm looking forward to it. Yeah, and, man. Uh, thanks also, for enduring the Also, anybody out there, if you want, try to come down to the, uh, the book signing at the, uh, the fuck is that place called again? Uh, the uh, Soap... Box. Oh, uh, Wacko is Wacko's, what we all call Wacko's. it. Yeah, it's an art gallery. Yeah, and that's uh, tomorrow. Yeah, and that's we're, we're going to well, be... Well, we won't be on by that soon, but okay. hopefully you guys saw it. All right, so if you guys hear this, you already <laughs> missed that. Hopefully you were there. If you weren't there... Get then, your uh, book you know, hopefully, Yeah. You got anything else coming up after that, book signing-wise? Uh, well, just these two gigs, and then I'm heading back home, and uh, I'm going to be actually hitting the recording studio with Melly Mel. Whoa. We're going to be All working right. on something. And for those of you who are not old enough to remember, The Message. Yeah, man. The fucking greatest hip-hop song. It, the it's Furious like, Five. Yo, I mean, come on. That was like, it's like a jungle sometimes. It makes me wonder how so I keep great. going under. <laughs> I mean, yo, that's like as much a New York anthem as Frank Sinatra's New York, New York. Beyond you know? a doubt. So I'm really excited to work with him. I mean, there's so much good shit going on right now, you know, between... Uh, between uh, the the book getting turned into a m movie, Mass Appeal, working with Melly Mel, working with Jocko. I mean, uh, I'm, yeah. Top shit, of the world, man. Yeah, shit good is for you. going good, man. Good for you. Still doing a jujitsu? I'm still teaching five days a week. All right. I actually had to get someone to cover my classes while I was here. Okay. Well, you, you should definitely do a big uh, book thing back in New York if you haven't already. Well, we did a few of them, and I think uh, it's going to be a little while before we do another one. Right. I, you know, I don't want to overkill. Yeah, good for you. Yeah. All right, well, thanks a million. Man, thanks for having me, bro. All right. Thank you for listening to the Tone Duff Sessions, a feature of Rare Bird Radio. Our next conversation will be with Keith Morris. If you don't know who Keith Morris is, you really need to either check your life or make sure that you listen.